Well, this is a big morning for us. Uh, you know, we're Presbyterians, which means we came from the Reformation, and the five-fold cry of the Reformation was grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, and glory to God alone. We are saved by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, and Scripture alone is our authority in faith and life as we seek to give all glory to God alone. And so this is our third grade Bible Sunday when we have third graders who are gonna get to receive their very own Bible with its study notes inside. It's an ESV Bible. You may know we use the ESV in our pew. There are many good translations, but uh, we love ESV and particularly the study Bibles that they create. And so I've got three of them here to give out today. And, uh, and the first one's John Griffin. John, I think I know you pretty well. It's my son there. He put on a suit for today. He really dressed up. Way to go, buddy. There you go. John, congratulations. We're going to get a picture. It's a Kodak moment here, so we're going we're gonna to pose right here. Can you see the camera? Look at that. Right. Perfect. That's right. Okay, good. And then we've got next here, oh, you didn't hand it to me. Great. Callie, Kelleher, Callie right there. And I love these study Bibles because it tells you, you know, when was this book written? And it gives you lots of ways to understand what God is saying through his word. So Callie, Congratulations, this is your Bible. I don't know if you can see that picture there. Look there. Great, all right, there you go. All right, and then last one, we've got Webb Throckmorton. Webb? Webb is on John's football team. He is fast. He is really quick. He's a fast runner. I think he's done some track before, too. Good job, buddy. You don't have to run now, though. It's fine, but you're doing great. Yeah. Here you go, Webb. This is for you, buddy. You see that camera over there to the left? Great. Good job, guys. So this is God's word. And we know from 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 16 to uh, 17, the apostle Paul tells us that all scripture, the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, is inspired by God or God breathed. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the person of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And anytime we read God breathed in the Bible, you know, God breathes life into Adam and helps bring dirt to life. And so God's word is gonna bring life to you as you read it, and you allow the spirit to speak to you through it. So today, our next reading is from Exodus. I think I've got, I think we might have it taken there. If you take, look at that little ribbon there. If you open it up where the ribbon is, I think we're at Exodus chapter one. We're about to begin a journey. That's good, why don't we turn to the next page. It's gonna be page 50. Uh, six in your Bible, 57 in your Red Pew Bibles, I think, if that's right, Exodus chapter one. We're beginning a new journey through Exodus. We're gonna look at the story of Moses together. So you guys have got it there. I'm gonna pray because uh, John Calvin, the guy who kind of helped start the Presbyterian Church, he talked about the importance of praying before we read God's word, that as we read it, that God might speak to us and that we need to have the ears and the eyes of faith. So let me say a prayer and then I'm gonna read it and you can follow along right up here and then go back to your seats. Sound good? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for these young people who love you, Lord, and we thank you for your word that was inspired by your spirit, written by human beings, but gives us direction in how we are to live and how we are to follow and how we are to love others of you as you have loved us. We pray, Lord, that as we read your word this morning again, that you might speak to us, that we might hear from you. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. So Exodus chapter one, we're gonna begin with verse eight. You may notice that there's a big chapter there, and there's little verses number eight. I think on your Bible right there, verse eight, the heading says, Pharaoh oppressed 
oppresses Israel. Very good. And I want you to bring your Bible to church every Sunday. I want you to bring that, and we're going to do a new challenge together. We're going to challenge every family to read through Exodus together. So every day, read Exodus. And if you'd like to read something in the New Testament, I would encourage you to read Mark. I wrote you a personal note about that. And the Gospel of Mark is only 16 chapters. You can get the whole story, and your parents can show you where that is. But right now, we're going to do Exodus 1, verse 8. You can follow along as I read. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and are too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she had saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him for a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and beheld, behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is, the one of the Hebrew, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Here ends the reading of God's word. You can close it up. And I want you to do what I'm doing here, okay? Watch me, okay? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord, you can raise that to the right hand, raise it. the word of the Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you have a seat, guys, good job. There are more children downstairs receiving uh, Bibles on this third grade Bible Sunday. It's, it's so much fun. In fact, we, if you were to go downstairs right now, there's about 150 people downstairs. Uh, but uh, you guys get to always end earlier, so good for you. Uh, they start at 11.05, get out at 12.10. You get out at noon, uh, Lord willing. Let's look again at Exodus. I kind of read that pretty fast there, but Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. 
Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. To say that a new king arose is a kind way to say that a new king took over or took command. You see, uh, previously when Joseph had been on the earth, and if you haven't had a chance to go see the musical at ALT, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Coat, it's a wonderful job. They're doing a great job with the show. They're very creative. Uh, Pharaoh uh, plays an Elvis. They've got Pharaoh dressing up like Elvis. Pretty funny to see. But there were, you, know, you know the story of Joseph in Genesis and how Joseph was, was, a, was a leader of, of Pharaoh's government. Well, there's a, a new Pharaoh that's arisen or taken over. In fact, scholars tell us that Joseph most likely lived during the reign of the Hyksos dynasty. The term Hyksos is an Egyptian word that literally means rulers of foreign countries. The Pharaohs of Hyksos were from Syria. They were foreigners who were ruling during Joseph's time. Then over time, some native-born Egyptian princes take over and they drive out the Hyksos dynasty and now they are in charge. And you can imagine how anxious they must be to see how many Israelites, people from Canaan, are living in their land. After all, they had recently been ruled by the Hyksos from Syria, which is not very far from Canaan. And so this Pharaoh, in a desire to to minimize and to shrink the Israelites, decides to enslave them, to put them under hard labor. But notice what happens in Exodus chapter 1, verse 12, we read, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. Throughout history, whenever the people of God are oppressed, rather than shrinking, they often grow. We see this with the first century church. Uh, historians tell us that at the end of the first century, in 100 AD, there were roughly 10,000 Christians, but by 300 AD, there were over 6 million Christians, right before Constantine became the emperor of Rome and, and allowed religious tolerance for Christians. They went from 10,000 in just a few hundred years to over 6 million. 10% of the Roman Empire was Christian by 300 AD. We've seen this kind of multiplication in our own times. We've seen this in the church in China with the underground church exploding. As the church in China is persecuted, it continues to grow and multiply. We've seen this in Iran as Sasan, the Iranian missionary that our church sponsors, told us about satellite television and satellite radio and how the internet is helping share the gospel and how Iranians are coming to faith in house churches throughout the country. Why does the church tend to multiply in the midst of persecution. It would seem to be that the church would shrink because, well, people would be afraid to say the name of Christ and it would be hard to get new members when they could see how they're persecuting Christians. Why is it the church tends to grow in the midst of persecution? Well, faithful followers of Jesus tend to be much more fruitful than nominal followers of Jesus. Nominal followers of Jesus, people who simply follow Jesus by name or by heritage, tend to fade away when the persecution comes. But those who are faithful followers of Jesus tend to lean into their faith in the midst of difficult times. And it's in the midst of leaning into their faith that their faith grows and they become even more fruitful for the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, but my faith has always grown the most in the midst of difficult times. As my faith has been tested, as I've faced a challenge, I've had to lean into God for his grace and strength and mercy and peace. As many of you know, uh, last Friday, my 
My father passed away after a two-year battle with prostate cancer. We sent out a blast email, and I just want to thank everyone who sent me a a, a note of condolence or a, a nice email or a text message, people who brought food and meals over to us or even flowers. We have experienced God's grace and God's compassion through you. Your, your ministry of presence has made the love of Christ very real to me and my entire family. So I want to thank you publicly for your, your love. I don't think our, our members can fully appreciate how compassionate and caring our church can be until you face a crisis. Now that I've experienced it firsthand, I, I just thank you. You've blessed me. And you've reminded me that even though my father is not here, God is. God is with us. God is with all of us. And God's love has been made known to us as a a wonderful reminder through your acts of compassion. You need to know that over the last, the last week of my father's life was, was really filled with extreme pain as the cancer had moved uh, from his prostate up to his spine. And in fact, the last time they did a CAT scan of his body, they could see that cancer cells went on every visible bone of his body. His PSA count was up to 400. Uh, we admitted him to the hospital on a, on a Friday and he was asked, what was your pain level from scale to one to 10? And it was an eight, very high. And then a few days later, he was asked again after getting some medication and having some tests done. It was up to a nine out of 10. The last time they took him to hospice and they went from uh, giving him um, uh, oral pain meds to uh, intravenous pain meds, in that interim period, he was asked what was his pain level and he said it was a 12, it was off the charts. And so I'm so grateful that my father's suffering and pain has ended. And I'm so grateful that my My father knows Jesus. In fact, he's with Jesus right now. My father got promoted last Friday. Heaven is always a promotion. For Jesus tells us in the gospel of Luke chapter 23, when the criminal next to him says, remember me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus says, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. My father is in paradise with Jesus. Well, there's no more cancer No more suffering, no more pain, only praise. Amen? Amen. On Wednesday night, August 29th, the last night that my father was fully coherent and we were able to have a nice two-hour conversation, knowing that he was dying, he said to me, Howard, when it's all said and done, the most important thing in your life is your relationships. It's not your accolades, it's not your awards, it's not your stuff, it's your relationships. I agree completely. The most important thing we have in this life is our relationships because our relationships help form us into the person that we are. God uses everyone that we know to help transform us and change us in in many ways. But the most important relationship that we're ever gonna have is our relationship to God. How is your relationship with God today? Is it growing? Can you say that God is the steering wheel of your life or is he simply a spare tire that we pull out every now and then when we go through a hard time? As we look at our text this morning, we can see that the midwives had God at the very center of their lives. He was the steering wheel. They, they, they submitted to God in all things. We see it in Exodus chapter one, verse 17. It says, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them but let the male children live. These midwives have been commanded by Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the land, the most powerful man on the planet, to destroy every male Hebrew who is born. But they fear God. Their relationship with God is is much more important than any relationship they have with a king. In fact, 
Their fear of God is greater than their fear of Pharaoh. They want to submit to God and want his will to be done. And so they resist the temptation to obey Pharaoh and they remain faithful to God by making sure that these children survive. Yes, these women know that as powerful as Pharaoh is, God is even more powerful still. After all, why do you think Pharaoh's plan to destroy the Israelites failed? Pharaoh thinks that by, that by enslaving the Israelites, he'll be able to stop the Israelites from multiplying. He, he reasoned that under harsh slave labor, the Israelites wouldn't have the strength to, 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 to multiply. But God gives the Israelites not only strength, but he gives them fertility so that their birth rate actually increases. My friends, the will of God cannot be thwarted. Our God is sovereign. He is almighty. He is all-powerful. And what God wants to happen, it will happen. Just ask Jonah, the prophet. You remember the story from Sunday school, right? Jonah is told and called by God to go to Nineveh, the capital city of his enemies, and to go and preach the word of God to the Ninevites. And the last thing Jonah wants to do is to go to Nineveh to preach to the Ninevites. Not because so much he's afraid of the Ninevites, but rather, as you read the whole book of Jonah, you'll see that that Jonah knows that if he preaches repentance to the Ninevites, they might, in fact, repent, and God, in his grace and mercy, might forgive them. And the last thing Jonah wants is to be an instrument of God's grace to his enemies. So what does Jonah do? He heads the other way. He gets in a boat and tries to flee from God, and we know how foolish that is, right? To try to flee from the call of God. God is everywhere, and what God wants, God gets. So God brings a a crazy storm, and and Jonah is cast out, and after a very uh, intimate encounter with a very large fish, Jonah ultimately is preaching in the city of Nineveh, submitting to the will of God. Yes, Jonah, if he was here today, would tell us it's much better to submit to the will of God than to try to flee the other way, amen? What God wants, God gets. Now, it's true we have free will. All of us do. We have the free will to make whatever decision we want. You know, we're not puppets. But when our will comes in conflict with God's will, ultimately our will will have to submit. I like the way that New Testament scholar and Presbyterian R.C. Sproul explains it this way. He says, our freedom is always and everywhere limited by God's sovereignty. God is free and we are free, but God is more free than we are. When our freedom bumps up against God's sovereignty, our freedom must yield. Pharaoh, in his selfish, sinful free will, tries to destroy the people of God. But God's will is greater than Pharaoh's will. For God's plan all along is to free the Israelites from slavery. But how do we know that exactly? Let's turn to Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, you may remember the story that God tells Abram to look up to the stars of the sky. Abram is still childless at this point. He says, look up at the stars of the sky and number the stars because if you can, that's how great your descendants will be. And we read that Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham was found to be righteous in God's eyes because he believed what God said because of his faith. And then in Genesis chapter 15, beginning with verse 12, we read this. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. 
We can see that the enslavement of the Israelites did not surprise God. God knew that Pharaoh was going to do that. God knew that in Pharaoh's selfish, sinful ways, he was going to enslave his people. But the question then arises is, why does God allow the Israelites, his chosen people, to be enslaved? Couldn't God have stopped the horrible enslavement of his people? Why does God allow bad things to happen to his people? Perhaps the reason God allows bad things to happen to his people, perhaps the reason God allows Pharaoh to enslave the Israelites is so that the Israelites might learn to trust God even more. Our faith tends to grow the most when it's tested. When we are first forced to turn to God in difficult times with difficult choices, God has a way of using the challenges of this life to help shape and form our character so that we better reflect his love in the end. And after my father died, my children and I sat around the dinner table one night and we were just talking about what we love about Papa. And uh, my oldest daughter, Hannah, started and she said, you know, Papa was the kindest man I'd ever met. And, and my daughter, Elizabeth, said the very same thing. He was the kindest man I ever met. And then my, my son, John, said, yeah, he was the kindest man I ever met. And I have to tell you, it was nice to hear that, but selfishly I was thinking, I thought I was the kindest man you've ever met. John assured me that I was kind, but he reminded me that every now and then, you know, I can get pretty angry when they don't obey, and, well, God's still working on my character, thanks be to God. My father was a very kind and compassionate person, but he didn't just, he wasn't just born that way. He became that way through the the crucible of pain. You see, when my father was just six years old, his father died in a horrible accident. Uh, He was electrocuted uh, and and trying to help a neighboring farmer lay some electrical lines in Quanah, Texas at the ranch out there. And and he was electrocuted and died. And and my grandmother at the time was pregnant with uh, their daughter Martha. And just a few weeks later, Martha was born prematurely and and Martha did not survive and, and she died. And then just a few years later, my dad's younger sister, Cornelia, contracted polio, and she didn't survive that disease, and she died. My father experienced the the pain of death in a very intimate way at a very early age. As I conversed with my father that last Wednesday night, when we were still coherent and able to talk, he, he told me that he could see, looking back in his life today, how God used those painful experiences to make him more compassionate to make him more empathetic to those who have lost a loved one. You see, my father was the moderator of the bereavement team at our church back in Midland, the First Presbyterian Church of Midland, where he would help with every funeral, and he would write these beautiful notes of comfort to the families who had lost loved ones, and he had beautiful handwriting, and these notes were not just beautiful because of the handwriting, but they were beautiful because of the words. They were written by someone who who could empathize with the pain of losing a loved one. He had taken the painful experience and made it an opportunity to be compassionate towards others. As the Apostle Paul tells us to do in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 to 6, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which God we ourselves are comforted who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves 
are comforted by God. God didn't kill my grandfather in 1945. He died because of a horrible human error and accident. God didn't kill my aunt, Cornelia, when she was only seven years old. She died because she contracted polio, a horrible disease that is a reality in this fallen and broken world that we now live in. God didn't kill any of my father's relatives, but God used these experiences of pain and loss to help make my father become a more compassionate person. God uses the painful experiences of our lives to help shape our character, to make us more into the image of his son who is full of compassion and love and grace. How has God been shaping your character lately? Because as we continue our journey through Exodus over the next several weeks, we will see that time and time again, God uses the pain, frustration, and fear to help shape Moses' character and ultimately the character of the Israelites. How has God been shaping your character lately? Because I believe it's important to point out that God doesn't save the baby Moses just so he could save one baby. God saves the baby Moses so that ultimately he might shape this little baby into a man who could help lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. He saved this one baby so that he might save many more. Let's look again at Exodus chapter 2, verse 5 to 6. We read, Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Now, a lot of people, when they're around crying babies, don't like crying babies. They want the baby to stop crying. They look cute, but when they're crying, they're not so cute, right? But when Pharaoh's daughter, bathing in the river, sees this Hebrew child, a child who has been circumcised, crying, she is moved with pity. Why was she moved with pity? Didn't she know that her father had said any Hebrew baby, baby boy, should be killed and drowned in the Nile? Why was she moved so much with pity? Perhaps she had experienced the pain and the frustration and the disappointment of of infertility, of not being able to have a child of her own. Perhaps she longed to have her own son that she might raise And she saw this opportunity. The text doesn't tell us, but we know this, that God knew that she would be moved with pity. And so she's the child of Pharaoh who finds baby Moses and brings this baby into the palace to be raised as her own. Do you see the great irony of this story? Pharaoh has created a law that says every baby boy from Hebrew, the Hebrews, must be drowned in the Nile River. This law led to Moses' parents putting their baby, innocent baby boy in a basket in the river. And now Pharaoh's own daughter has seen this beautiful baby boy and she takes him as his own. And now raising him in Pharaoh's own home. So that Pharaoh is, in some ways, responsible for helping raise the next leader of the people of Israel. You think this is just coincidence? I don't think so. As I look at Scripture, I see that time and time again, our God has a plan. It's a plan, ultimately, for our salvation. It's a plan for our transformation. It's a plan that is intended to help, ultimately, equip us so that we might help others. 
We see this in the story of Moses. God saves Moses as a baby. Then as Moses becomes a man through several challenges and many days in the wilderness, God transforms and equips Moses to become a great leader who can help save others. I believe God wants to use each one of us to to help save others, to live a life in such a way that we point others to Jesus Christ, the one who came to save us all. And as we remember the story of Jesus that we find in the Gospel of Matthew, we'll remember that, that God the Father had to rescue baby Jesus from certain death. For King Herod ordered that every child in Bethlehem should be killed, but God gives Joseph the father a dream, and so he takes Joseph and Mary and, and Jesus to Egypt, a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Then God helps his son be raised in Nazareth. And then at the age of 30, Jesus launches his public ministry where he begins to preach the word of God and he begins to heal and he begins to equip his disciples to do the work of God's kingdom. And then ultimately, Jesus does the ultimate work for all of us. In perfect obedience to our heavenly father, he, he, as the scripture says, became sin for us who knew no sin. Jesus was without sin, but he he died on the cross as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. As Jesus says in the Gospel of John, it is finished. Our sins have been atoned for. And then on the third day, Jesus rose again, conquering sin and death on our behalf so that we might have the full assurance that, that death does not have the final say for those who call upon the name of the Lord, that we will be in paradise just as my Father is in paradise today. We will be with Jesus for all eternity because of his victory over the grave, amen? And that's good news worth sharing. That's good news that we need to tell our friends and our coworkers and our classmates. God wants to shape us and mold us so that our character reflects the unconditional love of Christ, so that our message might come with not just words, but with power as those who have been transformed by the love of Jesus. As we continue our journey these next several weeks through Exodus, we will see that God didn't save the baby Moses just to save Moses by himself. No, God saved the baby Moses so that he might use Moses to help save many lives. God didn't send his son Jesus here to this earth just to save you and me so that we could get to go to heaven when we die. No, God sent his son Jesus to save you and me and to transform our character so that we might be equipped to help save others by pointing them to the one who came to save us all. How is God shaping your character, transforming you more and more into the image of Christ so that you better reflect the love of Christ? Because people don't care how much we know until they know how much we care. May we humbly submit to the word of God each and every day so that we might reflect his love in all that we say and do. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, I thank you for the good news of your son, that you are the God who came to save us all through his death on a cross and his resurrection on the third day. We have good news worth sharing, but we know that our our words shouldn't just be words. They need to be words that are followed by action. The people don't care how much we know until they know how much we care. So Lord, help us to be a conduit of your love. Help us to share your love in all that we say and do. And Lord, when we go through those difficult stages and those difficult times in our life, may we cling to you so that our character might be transformed by your spirit and that we might better reflect your love, that we might better reflect your compassion and love that you have for all of us. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your son who is the Christ and all God's people said, amen.